Hi, this is Steve Roost, and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. Each week, we give you the best news, views, and interviews from the health technology world. From CEOs and founders to entrepreneurs and clinicians, the companies and people that are shaping the future face of healthcare. All on the world's number one talk health radio. Welcome to this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost. Each week, we bring you the best news, views, and interviews with the leaders, clinicians, investors, and generally leaders of the health tech space in the UK and beyond. Um, As regular listeners will know, I am a founder and CEO of my own health tech business called PocDoc, who kindly support the show. We can get more into that as, as the show goes on. Thank you very much to the PocDoc team. Also, as ever, thank you very much to everybody who's listening live on UK Health Radio. Johan and his team do a fantastic job. It's also, um, you know, um, I'm sure some of you would like to know it's not just me on UK Health Radio. There are many other presenters doing many other fantastic shows. Um, Also, thank you very much if you're listening after the fact on Catch Up on Spotify, YouTube or any of the other podcast channels. Search for Health Tech Hour and you'll find us. You'll find my my smiling face. We really appreciate you tuning in. Um, without you guys, we wouldn't have a show. And actually, this this last couple of weeks, I've realized that when I pulled the stats that we've added Saudi Arabia to the 45 countries that listen every single month and download the show every single month. So thank you very much, Saudi Arabia and all of our listeners, all of our listeners there. And one more thing just to, to let everybody know. All of the shows, not just our show, all of the UK Health Radio shows are available for download on the UK Health Radio section of Spotify and other podcast platforms. So you can download it directly from the um, uh, the Health Tech Hour channel or from the um, from the channel of UK Health Radio. So on to today's show. Now, it's been a while since we've had an investor on. We always like getting investors on because I feel like it's one of those areas where there's there's sort of a, a a relatively accepted understanding that in order to grow a business you need investment i think that beyond that for the majority of people there's a bit of a lack of clarity around exactly how it happens and why it happens and how it all flows through and i think obviously in the current climate that it's it was obviously the economy the economy's in a bit of a strange situation both here in the us and so i think it's a really good opportunity to get um, an investor on and what an investor so we've got chris bischoff who's the md of general catalyst on the show um long-time investor in health technology healthcare, not just at general catalyst but previously so the list of businesses that either he has or you know in his role at gc or general catalyst or in other places invested in includes city block elena health livongo babylon and village md which is quite a list so we'll be getting into a number of different issues throughout the show. Um, but Chris, thank you very much for coming on the show. Welcome to the Health Tech Hour. Great pleasure, Steve. I'm happy to be on and looking forward to a good discussion. Good. Well, look, let's kick off things. So as I said, I, th- I think a lot of people probably listening, we're a very broad church on the show. So we have people that are from a health technology background, from a clinical background, people that are just generally interested in health. I think by now... There's probably a reasonably high understanding or, or like awareness of this venture capital space, okay, of, of that it exists and that it funds businesses and it funds, well, a huge number of businesses that we interact with today. 
as a consumer or as a patient or whatever it happens to be. So what I'd really like to start with is, is what was your pathway into that space? How did that happen? What was your journey into venture capital? Great question. So uh, I came to, uh, to investing when I was relatively old, uh, relative to most uh, startup investors. Um, I'd spent uh, 13 years at Goldman Sachs um, running a uh, team on the investment banking side. Um, prior to that, I was at business school and prior to that, I was consulting. So I spent a long while sort of figuring out what I wanted to do. Um, and I reached a point where it was really important for me to do something I really felt passionate about. And I felt I could have you know, real impact in. And um, healthcare and investing was really the, the culmination of those two things. I had, I had thought about investing uh, a number of times in my career, but I always delayed um, the, um, the decision to go into investing because I always thought, hey, I need some more skills before I do so. Um, and I've greatly benefited, I think, from my history in sort of services, whether consulting and then banking, in the sense that I think all investors ultimately need to be service providers to entrepreneurs. Um, and if you think you are the capital provider and that's the end of the job, you are, you know, wildly mistaken. <laughs> I think that's really interesting. So when you said that you felt like you wanted to add more skills, what did you feel like you were lacking or that you wanted to add on before you made that leap across? So when I was a consultant, I, you know, I learned how to prepare PowerPoint decks as consultants tend to and encapsulate um, messages in sort of pithy, um, uh, pithy, pithy one-liners. Uh, but, you know, more seriously, think about industry strategically. And then banking gave me some experience of transacting, but it also gave me experience of working with CEOs and management teams on highly complex and difficult decisions, right? Ultimately, as a bank, uh, you, you are advising on an M&A situation, an IPO situation, um, a strategic investment area. So you think quite heavily around capital allocation and then how to make things happen. You obviously don't actually make things happen because you're not in these companies, but you've got to come with real ideas and you've got to develop a real empathy and a, a rapport with the CEO of a business to be taken seriously. And I think, um, you know, fundamentally, that is, 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 is true of working with founders. You've got to build the rapport. You've got to build that safe space. Um, you've got to deliver tough messages sometimes, but in the end of the day, you've got to come from a point of understanding them and their journey and the business's journey. Um, and I think that sort of experience, if you will, of this service provider um, has been extremely helpful to me. Above all, because you know I've always looked at the... At, at backing founders who I think I can help mature on their journey um, and, and, and bring some of the experiences I've got. The other thing is to say is that you get a great business understanding in banking and consultancy and healthcare is a business in the end of the day. And I know we all look at it as a passion project and an impact project, <laughs> but in the end of the day, you know, to be sustainable, you know, we need to make these things viable and, you know, really understanding what makes a business viable um, financially, I think is an important part of it too. Yeah. And I, um, I think that's really interesting. There's a few things in there just to, just to pick up on. So I've always been a big believer that there's money and then there's smart money, you know? And I think that one of the things that people underestimate is that value that, um, investors can bring. 
particularly VC investors. And so I think it's interesting that you bring that up as a major point right out the gate around your experience in those other sectors led to you being able to add more value to founders. Is that something where you feel like there needs to be more of that in the investment space? If people come in young and they haven't had quite that track record or like, what's your view on that? I'm, you know, I'm sure there's some great. Young no, I, mean, investors. I, I think it depends. Look, I think as an investor, you have to choose um, your style of investing. Um, you know, GC and myself through my career, and I can touch on sort of my early days of investing. I always chose to invest in businesses I truly believed in and that I was not going to invest in very many. And I was going to invest with the assumption that in areas like healthcare uh, that are highly complex with long sales cycles, um, investors need to really engage in the business on a regular basis to support founders and their teams to build. That it's not like a SaaS business that just gets sold. Um, and, uh, and and so a high volume approach to investing where you, you know, pick a number of companies, you see what works and you double down on what does, what does work and you let go what doesn't. To me, that doesn't feel very, um, a, a personality wise attuned with how I approach life but also be very effective in healthcare. Um, healthcare is just too hard to do it that way. And I think what resonates in healthcare, healthcare's, the immense advantage in healthcare is that oftentimes we actually know the problem. It's not like uh, building the next consumer app where you, no. you, you know, some extraordinary entrepreneur uh, finds a tool or device that nobody thought they needed and then it becomes um, core to their everyday living. In healthcare, we know the problems um, and so you can work back to think through the solutions, but um, it does recall, of course, require much more effort to get there. Yeah. And I think that that, I, I mean, as a health tech founder, I would completely agree with that. Um, and it's definitely through our experience or my experience been that there are people that have a, no, don't necessarily have to be clinicians or anything, but having some kind of understanding of the, the broader market conditions, route to market duration regulatory framework all of those type of things within the healthcare space makes a big difference um in terms of how you interact with those individuals and how much value they can bring to the business yeah so we've actually set up our business uh, with the largest maybe a little context on us uh, general catalyst is the largest investor in vc and early growth in the world in healthcare um, and we've set up our business uh, to be very thematic focused, um, everyone on our team, which Genocast is a very large firm uh, and it's multi-sectorial, but our healthcare team, which amounts to around 20 people now across the globe, uh, are very sector focused and very thematically driven. Uh, and so we're trying to look at for problems uh, to solve and ideally hard problems to solve. And then we bring, hopefully, our capabilities, our insight, our go-to-market experience, um, our operating partners to bear to help founders build in those sectors. So we've deployed that approach, and it all comes back to what we call a thesis of health assurance. So we're trying to assure better health. Health insurance sort of only works to some degree, right, because it's sick care-based, and we need to move to health assurance, and that's preventative care. So we have a sort of overall thesis and that drives all our work from there, rather than trying to throw, um, you know, darts at a board. <laughs> Which is also a um, fairly well-trodden investment pathway, I suspect, perhaps less successful um, of just throwing darts at things. So um, what? when did you start to do your investments in health? Obviously, you were in consulting. That probably wasn't 
that investment focused? I don't know whether you worked on some healthcare. Yes, yeah, so I got an opportunity in 2013. Um, I was advising a large growth uh, capital investor in Europe, Europe's largest growth capital investor, uh, a fund called Shinovic based out of Sweden. And they asked me to join to really head up their investment uh, team. And that was a terrific opportunity. I was a managing director at Goldman Sachs. It was a terrific opportunity to come into um, an incredibly entrepreneurial organization um, and and really take the lead of shaping it uh, in terms of where it invested. And um, that, that was an opportunity I jumped at. I sort of learned the investing ropes quite quickly. They had an existing portfolio of assets that I had to sort of comb through, work out which were the winners, you know, which were the um, the less good companies, and then figure out how to monetize some of those and, and really push the emerging winners into a position of leadership. So, uh, and I built a team around that uh, of around 10 people. So that was really the genesis. And um, I went to the board of this company, it's publicly listed and said, look, I really believe with your time frame, um, because it was a permanent capital vehicle or is a permanent capital vehicle, with your time frame, with your focus on sort of the hierarchy of human needs, and this is a company that was in um, telecoms, media, and other sectors, healthcare is just a terrific fit. And they, you know, very um, generously backed me to go build um, a healthcare business, critically um, in the US as well as Europe. Um, and so that was, that was, you know, that was my genesis. And one thing, you know, sometimes a disadvantage can be an advantage. So I came to healthcare, I wasn't a physician. Um, I'd spent my life uh, in banking uh, and primarily in technology banking. Um, and I was became a large investor uh, in growth capital in the US and probably the largest investor in growth capital in the US in healthcare. My, my advantage was I was not based in the US. And so I was coming to the US market for uh, healthcare with an outsider's perspective. And that for and I had no brand name and I had no um, relationships, so I had to sort of survive on my wits. And right. you know, in life, that's a tremendous. You're an entrepreneur. You've done that. Yeah. Done that for a while. Um, you know, that's a tremendous um, uh, impetus to you know to really do the work and figure out what um, what is meaningful and what's useful versus versus you know what is. Um, you know, perhaps less, you know, less important. And, and so I was able to do real bottom-up work to figure out what I thought was going to move the needle in US healthcare and then back the companies that um, were, 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 were working on that. And what, was, what, what were your kind of conclusions at that point about what would move the needle and how did it kind of pan out? Right, because that was probably what, like, yeah, so, so, ago, so, 10 years ago? When, how, I don't, I'm trying to, like, yeah, track back you know, I really spent a couple of years building the thesis, um, and then I made an investment a year uh, for five years. Okay. And, um, you know, a lot, and I doubled down on those. And so I committed, you know, well, you know, over 400, maybe $500 million. It's a very highly concentrated bets to my earlier point. Um, my first thesis um, was the digital front door, Right. Common thesis today, um, but you know, back in 2013, it felt that was needed, and it felt like telemedicine was going to be like telebanking—a um, a, a brief period of change in modality, but not actually a change in practice. Right. Um, and so I met Ali Parser uh, at 
um, uh, and he was, he'd left Circle and he was going to start up Babylon. And so I put the first institutional check into that. Um, and so that was my, and that was obviously in the UK, and that was my thesis around taking AI um, to, tr you know, to, to create this sort of engaging consumer front door. And we can get back to it, but obviously that's a very difficult thesis to execute on. Yeah. Um, and by, by the way, Ali Parza, guest on the show previously, he has helped us back in our early days of starting PocDoc and has, has been someone that's been on a personal level, someone that I have a lot of time for. I know that obviously things may not necessarily have worked out quite exactly the way that everybody hoped, but you know, I, um, yeah, just in the interest of full disclosure. Yeah. And I think Ali's really a, a visionary and, you know, I think he, he got a lot of things right. Uh, I think the timing and the execution were challenging and, you know, we'll talk about it, but just how much capital you need to build um, in healthcare, uh, it, it, it was also something that I think um, it made it difficult for him with the SPAC and then the subsequent change in market conditions. So that was a thesis. Thesis two was chronic condition management is critical. Um, you know, we know that for now, you know, now. Perhaps it was a little less apparent back then that um, the majority of folks um, who are elderly will have one or more um, comorbidities. Uh, these are behavioral conditions. And if you can find a way uh, to treat these people who don't want to go into their GP or PCP um, on a weekly basis, you need to find a way to treat them and empower them to treat themselves. Um, you could have a significant impact uh, on the cost of care. And I was lucky enough uh, I focused on diabetes, given type 2 diabetes is so prevalent in the U.S. It's about 10% of the population and growing. It's madness. Um, madness, madness, and, and, and so costly. Uh, and maybe GLP-1 um, ends up uh, having a positive effect there. We'll, we'll see. But I, mean, I, I was lucky enough to meet a uh, terrific founder called Glenn Talman building a business called Livongo, Live on the Go. Um, and his son had been diagnosed uh, with diabetes, and he sat in the hospital ward with his kid and promised, "I will find a solution for people with your condition." I didn't know that was the. I didn't know that was the story. That's a great story. I didn't yeah. know that was the origin. That's cool. That's, that's Glenn's origin story uh, at Lavonga, and obviously he's been a serial founder. Um, and and what. Glenn did, and he, you know, in fairness, Glenn built it with one of my partners at GC, an outstanding individual called Hamont Tanija. Uh, and what they figured out was if you could marry hardware, software, and services together in healthcare, in a in a closed loop system uh, where the three interact, you could actually treat large volumes of patients um, incredibly well. And they bought a fingerprint device for blood testing. Well before CGMs were on the market, mm -hmm. they married. They had they they ensured that device was wireless connected. It they married that with software that they built, um, and then services. And the software effectively delivered prompts to consumers on the device at the point of care, saying, "Hey, look, your blood sugar levels are high, 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 sorry, high or low. You need to do X, Y, Z." And like a ad tech business or like a like a Facebook, therefore, they got really, really good A-B testing messages, um, you know, to understand yeah. what's Steve going to react to, what's Chris going to yeah. react to, um, because they had this feedback loop, which is so rare in healthcare to have very fast feedback loops. 
And and then at the end of that, they understood, look, we need humans in the loop, um, but very, very few few humans to look after very large numbers of populations. And obviously humans, the service level was informed by the software level. So they were the humans called when your you know blood sugar levels were out of range. Um, but were available if anybody had anxiety any time. And, and I love that model in terms of you know, true tech-enabled services. Um, it empowers the consumer. It leverages people at the top of their license. Um, it delivers its services 24-7 at any address, and uh, it creates terrific ROI. But it, so that, that, was a, that was a real wonderful- That was a win-win. That was a win-win. We scaled that business from when I invested, I think it had- LTM revenue of around uh, $15 million. In a four-year period, we scaled it to somewhere like uh, $350 million. Um, and we were able to sell that for $18.5 billion uh, to Teladoc, which ironically was that legacy um, telemedicine business that I had invested in Babylon to. Yeah, um, to, to, to disintermediate, right? Disintermediate. So, and in fact, they bought it, obviously, and I went on the board of Teladoc for a period of time. Teladoc bought it because they needed to move from that episodic acute care um, uh, interaction with patients um, over the phone to something that was more longitudinal um, uh, because they were getting commoditized, right? So I was right about commoditization. And ironically, the company uh, I invested in um, you know, on a longitudinal care basis was the one that they they decided to buy to 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 offset commoditization. So that was the second thesis area. Right. Cool. Okay. Good. My producer is yelling at me that we have to go for our first commercial break. So we will be back after two minutes with Chris Bischoff, managing director of General Catalyst, the largest VC investor in early stage and growth health tech businesses in the world. We'll be right back. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to this week's uh, Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost, and my guest, Chris Bischoff, who is the Managing Director of General Catalyst. So before the break, uh, Chris had given us a fantastic range of, of, of the theses that he, or sorry, Chris, you had given us, I'm not sure why I'm talking about you like you're not here. Chris, you had given us a fantastic overview of the theses that you use to build your investment, sort of go to market, if you like, um, in the US. We want to switch it up a little bit now and just talk a little bit about where do you think investors can add the most value when things start to go a little bit wrong? Everyone obviously starts a business because they believe that business is going to be huge and successful, massively valuable, but you can't necessarily control things that are outside of your control. And so how, what are some of the best examples of investor behavior that you've seen or some of the things where you really feel like you or others have added value when times have been tough? And to, like you mentioned it before, sometimes you have to give tough messages to founders. I just think it's an interesting area that sometimes doesn't get as much airtime as possible because everyone just wants to think about the good times. Yeah, look, I think honesty in any relationship is is critical. And I think you've got to earn trust. But once, once you've earned trust, I think um, investors owe it to be honest with founders. And I think investors can be peculiar beasts, right? Because one minute they're telling the founders to grow at all costs and then next minute... <laughs> Telling the founders, "Hey, cut that growth. We need to see profitability." And so, um, uh, you know, founders somehow—the good founders, I think—are good at balancing investors and saying, "Okay, well, I take this with a pinch of salt." Um, and uh, so, you know, for what? So, for one, I think investors need to be honest. Two, they need to realize they're in the service of the company as well as their own fund, right? Mm -hmm. And so, I think 
when things get tough, sometimes investors go off in all different directions because they focus on perhaps you know their own particular priorities beyond those of the individual um, uh, company. I think I think I think what we've seen through the reset uh, post sort of 21, 22 is a real opportunity for a number of companies to go back and say, okay, you know, when I look at my business, um, did I overexpand? Um, is some of my revenue, you know, effectively lower margin revenue, um, less attractive revenue? Um, you know, when I look at my cost base, is that really sustainable? Um, in a high cost of capital uh, environment. Um, you know, when I look at um, what I've done in terms of diversifying away from the core in terms of adjacencies, are all those really um, necessary? I think when capital is cheap, um, companies and investors, you know, really sort of risk taking their eye off the ball because um, it's easy to fund uh, any type of growth. and. Yeah. When I think about healthcare, particularly on the delivery side, so much is local. Um, you know, so much is density locally, um, and 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 really focusing on the core. So, you know, for one, I think investors owe it to founders to say, as soon as the market changes or the business changes, okay, look, what are my expectations over the next twelve to eighteen months? Um, this is what you know you need to do in order to have a shot of you know further funding for myself or somebody else so the founders have a clear position they're not being sort of left in the loop outside the loop rather um in terms of what uh, they need to do right because in any situation if you can get out of a hole um you, you need that clarity you know second thing is you know as a founder is you know you eat an elephant you know morsel by morsel right break it down um <laughs> How do you eat an elephant? One mouthful at a time. Time, exactly. <laughs> right. So break it down. Every problem looks insurmountable uh, at any point in time if you look at it uh, in its entirety. But if you break it down, um, that's incredibly important. Um, I, I do think companies that sometimes lose their way also have got into situations where not everybody in the organization is empowered and feels aligned and i i think it's a real opportunity for investors well investors in management uh and particularly the founder to to sort of reset and re-incentivize folks about this is really what we're doing this is why we're doing it you know really communicate to teams and empower teams to you know kind of help them make the calls that the businesses need to make to change rather than a top-down hey we're changing you know live with it um, empower the C-suite and the leadership to say, okay, look, we need to change tack. We need to pivot. We need to do X or Y or Z. Um, we're doing this together. And it's not the board is telling me, the CEO, to do it. You know, we're, we're telling the board this is how we're going to do it. So yeah. I, I do think it's important for management teams to be empowered. Um, look, it's, it's in, in tough times, it requires more communication. Um, but getting through those periods is always just, incredibly satisfying and i think every business has those tough times right and even yeah it's, i mean rarely is it just completely plain sailing right. i don't i don't know it's plain sailing right. and it always looks you know worse you know at that point when you're looking into that abyss right it always yes. looks like woof you know how are we going to get through this but um 
you know, so many great companies were born in market downturns. So many great companies went through that period where their metal was tested and came out the other side and, and they may have pivoted their business model or done something different. But there's incredible discipline that, you know, a lack of access to funding, high cost of capital puts on businesses. I mean, that's the private equity model, ultimately, high yeah. cost of capital. And you've got to run this business with an enormous amount of debt that pressurizes your cash flow. So you've got to be yeah. really careful, right? So some of that, you know, is great to refocus and then obviously grow from there. You know, I'm, I'm much rather a business. I say to entrepreneurs, I or we as a firm would much rather take a hit on the business and regrow from a lower base at a higher rate than have artificially high numbers that you can't grow because, you know, the quality of that revenue or earnings. Yeah, you basically goosed it right up and then you can't get any further because, and then you're kind of committed to try and make it look better and make it look better and you're not addressing the core problems and all those kind of things. Completely exactly. understand. Right. Now, it's hard to do that, right? Investors may need to take marks, management, you know, may need to do some changes, right? But if you can get that done, wow, it's it's easier, you know, it's easier the other side of that tough decision. Yeah, I remember. So when um, I was one of the early employees at a business called Viagogo, which became very large and um, subsequently has bought back the founder's previous company, StubHub, for four billion in cash. So, um, you know, I started there in early 2008, just just before the financial crash. Then capital got cheap again. And we grew again off the back of quite a lot of capital. The founder was very, very good at raising money. Then there was another contraction. And um we had to go through a phase of exactly what you said, which was effectively the market no longer values top line growth, the market values profitability. And it was that lesson watching the founder who I worked, who I worked for directly um, go through every unit of the business and understand how that role contributed to the contribution or net contribution or, you know, EBITDA and go through that with a fine tooth comb and make those tough decisions was an incredibly um, insightful lesson. Um, you know, and we went from burning millions a month to being EBITDA positive within about three or four months, just purely because there was so much stuff that was happening that didn't make any sense. But because capital was cheap, we just didn't really need to look at it. Didn't really, we didn't have that discipline. Yeah. And startups die primarily because they run out of money, right? You need to find a way to either increase your revenue or, or reduce cost, right? Uh, when times get tough. But, uh, but yes, that's a, that's a good example. Um, so let's just change ever so slightly. So let's go back to Teladoc and Livongo, because I think it's a really good case study in a lot of different ways. And um, it'd be great if we can just kind of unpick it without, you know, breaching any secret squirrel kind of, you know, confidentiality or anything like that. Because the reason why I like it is, is partly because of exactly how you described it, which was there was a, I would say, early stage digital business that was really a old business with a sort of digital layer to it which was telehealth basically becoming highly commoditized in a highly competitive market supply constrained because there's only a finite number of doctors and clinicians demand growing but other market entrants coming in probably race to the bottom in terms of unit revenue and things like that so and then they make a call which is to buy this new business called Livongo for the reasons that you laid out a higher ROI repeat usage um, you know better product completely different but also aligned with this sort of space and so how well do you think teledoc integrated that business into 
that overall because Teladoc was a is a big business and it was a big business when they bought it. Um, so how well did they go about kind of integrating that, or did they run it as a kind of a separate play? So yeah, so that, that's a really good question, and I think look, I spent as I said thirteen years as a banker and M and A. The hard work starts once you've bought the company, right? Yeah. And I think in hindsight, in the hindsight of 2020, they probably underinvested in integration. And um, it's it's tough on, on these. Uh, one was a largely West Coast culture and one, that being Livongo, a tech culture with tech compensation models uh, and obviously a number of employees that had, you know, uh, being able to uh, achieve kind of significant personal wealth, like so life-changing personal wealth, life-changing life personal wealth, then to become employees of an East Coast, more traditional firm, you know, much larger, much more bureaucratic. Um, you can see that sort of meshing those two cultures um, uh, uh, was really, really challenging. Um, and so, um, I think theory and practice in M and A. Are very very different, and you know that's why I counsel founders to be very cautious about um, about M and A. And if they're going to do it, really thinking about that cultural fit um, day one. So much of it comes down to that, right? Because if you've got good cultural fit, that the challenges that will come with integration, and there will be one, there will be dissynergies as well as synergies. You have a shot at overcoming those. Um, if you disregard culture. I think it becomes incredibly hard, um, you know, to make these things effective, no matter what the logic is of the combination. And I think um, that that was that was the challenge at Teladoc. I think I think part of the reason why it was difficult was also Teladoc's core business. Um, it was was as you say under significant threat um, as 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 that market commoditized during during COVID and, and post. Um, look. Telox is a terrific company. They do, you know, well over two billion of sales now, um, um, and are growing. You know, give, even despite their size, are growing at thirty percent plus a year. Is that um, is that what the, is that what their growth is? Thirty percent. Ooh, that's pretty yeah. good in that market. Uh, I, I, so you know, in the end of the day, it's not meteoric growth, but and maybe it's twenty five percent, but it's it's still you know not pedestrian and. Um, I think Lavongo has been critical um, to adding capabilities to what they do, particularly as they try to diversify away from the commoditization by providing value-based care arrangements. And I'm happy to you know, talk a little bit about that. Uh, but but that, 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 that was one of the impetuses. And I think if you think about where Teladoc ends up, if they can be, provide value-based virtual care, I think that will be the, the way to offset commoditization. Well, I, I think this value-based care thing we can get onto, obviously, because that was that was the sort of thesis that, that Babylon sort of pursued in the US. Uh, and, and it'd be great to get your thoughts on that. I think I completely agree with you, which is if you can land digital first value-based care, if you can really execute on that, that is extremely lucrative if you can get to that point. And, 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 and if, and I'm, by that, I mean, not only can you execute on the actual product, but it does actually deliver for patients. That's yeah, incredible. Well, value-based care, as you know, but the audience might not, is it's only lucrative if it delivers for the patient because uh, if you don't deliver the patient, that, that there is no margin for the provider. So 
Um, so yes, I think that is that was Ali's thesis um, because he saw the commoditization. He was a new entrant to the U.S. market. There was no way he was going to beat Teladoc in terms of um, basic telemedicine. Um, but the execution is extremely hard, as Ali found out. And you know, Teladoc is easing into virtual value-based care. And uh, and I would say there's really only a handful of companies. Um, in the U.S. that have been able to execute that strategy in any way or shape or form. Um, and the ones that have done best are actually being payviders um, who, who obviously control the, the, the premium um, as well as the delivery side of the business, um, which makes it well, a So they can control their revenue a bit more, right? Because they can flex it up if they need to. Is that what that means? Well, it means that they can control the, the, the terms under which they provide virtual value-based care because they own the delivery system, right? So one of the challenges in value-based care is the negotiation with a payer over what is included, what is not included, um, how you determine value. You know, value is not a hard uh, objective measure. And so um, a lot of startups in the US have really struggled outside of contracts with CMS um, to really, you know, to really, uh, get agreement with payers over what is value and how to measure it. Um, if you're a payvider, you control both the payer and the provider. It's a wash, effectively, because right, it's a full stack, stack, right? You own you you own the value chain, basically. It's like Live Nation in in entertainment. You're the promoter, the ticketing company, the parking lot, the venue hall, the whole thing. Yeah, you're taking the risk anyway. It just depends. Are you taking it in the insurer or are you taking the provider? It's in right. It's in your business. Okay, well, look, on that, we'll come back to that after our final short break. This is the final break in this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost, and my guest, Chris Bischoff, Managing Director of General Catalyst. Hello, and welcome back to the final part of this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost, and my guest, Chris Bischoff, the Managing Director of General Catalyst. So, Chris, just before the break, we were getting into value-based care. So, as we are a broad church, I'm sure there's people listening who understand what that means, and there's probably people that don't. So, just correct me if I'm wrong, but value-based care is fundamentally where a a, um, a company, for example, well, it could be Teladoc, it could be anyone, ultimately is paid a fixed amount to deliver all the care for a certain patient for 12 months. Is that correct or incorrect? Yeah, so that exactly right, Steve. So that's the that's the basis of um, the model. Effectively, um, the payer will. Um, take a margin for customer acquisition if they have to acquire the customer and administration and then pass on the rest of the premium for the insurance to the provider to deliver that care. And if the provider is able to deliver that care uh, uh, at a lower cost than the, 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 the revenue they receive, they make it a margin. If they don't, they, make, they lose money. Um, that creates incredible incentive alignment. And one of the challenges in healthcare is incentive alignment, particularly with a fee-for-service yep. model where you know, utilization is obviously encouraged, right? Because if you're a doctor and, or a nurse practitioner or whatever else, you know, why wouldn't you utilize more? Or, and why wouldn't you in a fee-for-service world um, also um, just treat the person who comes through the door rather than take a look at your panel and say, whoa, you know, who out there could be either high risk or emerging risk of some sort of condition could, that could lend them up in the ER um, uh, or some sort of inpatient setting. And um, since the ER and inpatient settings are the highest cost 
uh, part of the healthcare delivery um, uh, ecosystem, avoiding patient time there through preventative care is enormously beneficial um, to, to, to the health system, right? Uh, and patient yeah. outcomes are also cheaper to deliver, right? So the value-based model is all about saying, how can I do what's called population health, spend time with the people who need my care most as a healthcare provider, rather than the people who walk through the door because I'm incentivized on taking care of those. Yeah, and I think that's critical. It's the incentive, selection pressure, however you want to talk about it, which is there is a upside in and a down as an upside if you do and a downside if you don't focus on the most urgent people first, in effect, or the most high-risk people. And and I think one of the challenges is so this is a challenge I mentioned, this is a challenge economically to figure out how these contracts are structured and you need actuaries and payers and providers uh, agonize over, you know, what are the exclusions and, and, and all the rest. But then it's very hard from a healthcare practitioner point of view. If you've been taught to practice in fee-for-service, to, to transition to value is not easy. And there's a real change management um, need to make that happen. And you need physician leaders to really bring uh, practices along. Um, and you need the tools to do population health well, right? So you Yeah, need... you, really, you really, really, really do. Because if you don't have the tools, then it's not going to go anywhere. It's going to go That's right. You don't know who you need to look after, right? No. So you tools that dashboards that tell you okay look based on uh claims you know based on uh medical records um you know a chris or a steve um needs to be visited and um you know what is so empowering for this model is you can then decide what money to spend you can say yeah. well if chris needs some you know help with um food or housing or other social determinants of health you can spend that money because ultimately yeah. it's you're taking risk as the provider. You don't have to think, okay, well, is there a billing code for this? And if there's not, I can't do it. Well, and also like, well, goodness me, I've got, I've always got a completely full ER, so I can't move cost out of there because I've always got to staff that. And that always has to be that way because it always is that way. Whereas in the, this model, you're incentivized to take decisions that, like you say, fund other things that you might believe in the medium to long-term might pay off. Um, because you have a financial incentive to do so and the freedom to do so because you've, you've added that element of financial risk, capitalism, whatever you want to call it, into the system, I guess. That would be how I think Absolutely about it. Absolutely right. So where is it difficult? It's difficult in the commercial population in the US where, as you know, in the US, a large number of people receive their health care through their employer. And yep. because the labor force, one of the, one of the incredible things about the US is the labor force is, force is very liquid. But that means people churn on average their job every three years. And therefore, if the insurer is only keeping the patient for three years because the, the, the patient the, 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 the member moves um, when, when the person moves jobs, they're not per se incentivized as much to think about longitudinal care, right? Because yep. if somebody gets sick 10 years down the line, why should they invest today? In models like the UK, where we have you know, a national pair, we should be ideally suited to longitudinal care. Um, and we have huge amounts of data potentially available to us. So one of the challenges in these models is how do you put it uh, into practice in, um, you know, in parts of the healthcare insurance market 
where um, people churn a lot. Um, that employ that impacts obviously the employers uh, in in the U.S. in that employer funded plans. It also impacts Medicaid in the U.S., yeah. which is the largest single payer in the U.S. Um, it's for it's for disadvantaged people. They churn it in and out. Uh, it's most effective in Medicare, which is for elderly, because obviously yeah, once you're elderly, static, you stay elderly. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's because this is this 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 area is where Ali at Babylon moved into in the U.S., which drove the massive increase in revenues that we saw ahead of the listing or the SPAC listing, and so. Just to try and break it up, because I know there's been a lot of people that have, have heaped a lot of schadenfreude on the situation, which I think kind of clouds the issue. But was the was the thesis correct in what he was trying to do, which was virtual value based care? And it was more of an execution or a, a market issue that meant it ended up the way that it did. Or was there something different about the way that he or Babylon approached value based care that meant it was just harder for them from the get go? So I think the thesis was right, but you know, in the end of the day, execution is everything, right? And so, um, in value-based care, so so effectively, what Ali um, did was he bought into value-based care delivery businesses providers, and then used Babylon and, and the services Babylon has as a wraparound for those providers. And those tools that I mentioned to help them practice better in value-based care, that's really, really hard to do. Um, and there are a number of MSOs in the US that are out there. MSOs are um, organizations that provide these wrappers for uh, practice to practices to move from fee for service to value. Um, okay. but but Ali's so Ali, Ali had some execution questions. He also, and I think this is a lesson that Ali has been vocal about, was he took on debt and startups. You know what? At times, debt can look attractive because in, in, in certain markets, debt can be cheap and certainly cheaper than equity. Um, the, the challenge, obviously, always with debt is that it has to be repaid. And you've got to pay the bill. You've got to pay the bill. With equity, um, you know, ultimately, investors you know, understand they're taking um, junior risk in the cap table. And you know, they, 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 they're, there's always going to be a chance of a write-off. So, so I think... Um, in the end of the day, the debt holders of the business, you know, didn't give him the leeway to execute, and he was unable to raise equity at a price he felt uh, appropriate for the business. I, I, I'm not, I'm not personally involved in, sure. in Babylon, haven't been for a long time, but I would say, thesis-wise, absolutely correct. Um, and you know, the two big levers for change in healthcare are one technology, and two changes of incentives. And you know, he was trying to use technology through Babylon, and then obviously a value-based payment model for incentives. So I'm a great believer in that. Um, and I think, you know, that will, you know, I will show that um, businesses can succeed, in, can succeed in both those models. We've seen really good digital businesses, and we've seen really good value-based businesses. We've seen very few digital value-based businesses succeed so far, but, but that will that happen. Sense. And um yeah, that makes I, I, that makes total sense. So, is is the majority of the system in the U.S. now value based care, or is it still there's a bit of a debate, and some of it's fee for service, and some people are value, or like, have we have has the argument been decided, or is it still sort of up for debate? So, 
it's it's by no means the majority. Um, and value base is a broad church. So if you take value base as somebody uh, as a provider working under financial performance incentives or performance incentives on on on. Yeah cost of care, right? You could say that's value-based, right? There's upside and downside sharing. There's bonus payments if they do well. In that very thin definition of value, rather than sort of full capitation, i.e. full downside risk and upside, there's quite a lot of providers. But in the true capitation sense of taking all the upside and downside risk, it's it's still very early days. As I said, it's it's most prevalent in Medicare, which is since the US, like Europe, is an aging population, um, is a very large part of the market. It's becoming more prevalent in Medicaid and the crossover between Medicaid and Medicare duals. Um, it's almost non-existent in the commercial population, um, which is obviously a significant part of the market. So actually, it's most prevalent in the government-sponsored part of the market, where the taxpayers footing the bill and CMS, which is the regulator in the US, is creating these models for practices to practice on the value-based contracts. Um, so the US has got a long way to run. The other thing just obviously to, to say, um, there are a number, if you're a hospital system and you have a large number of beds and you rely on the ER to make you um, hit your revenue numbers, um, value-based care may not actually sound a terrific. That good, good right? That's right. But that's what that's the weird perverse incentives, like the the kind of free economics of the U.S. the healthcare system. Absolutely right. So so, um, and remember, hospital systems in the U.S. they rely on debt. They're big businesses, and so to transition to value is hard. You know, is really hard for them. Large businesses, um, and 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 they struggle, and so some and some of them have, and some of them don't have downstream provider groups, right? And so if you have a downstream provider group um, that is sort of primary care focused, you can practice in value and capture the value through your own provider network, right? Yeah, that's you, like owning the value chain that we talked about. Right, right? you and you, you, yeah. it's all. But in, if you're in just a hospital system, which is a high cost center of care. Um, that's tough. The other thing is that payers in the US don't always love giving away value-based contracts to systems and providers because they say, well, look, we want to capture some of that value, right? If you're CMS, you're you're a government entity, that's not your primary objective, right? But if you're a commercial payer, you may say, well, why would I do a value-based contract with you? Because you will recoup the benefits versus potentially my own provider network because some of the payers in the US you know have large provider networks. Yeah. And so it could be even if your system would like to practice in value, maybe they don't have their own provider group. And maybe the pair dynamics in their own state makes it incredibly hard for them to do so. So they yeah. would have to then launch their own plan, uh insurance plan, which is complicated and costly to do. So even if even if there's some sort of difficulties from a change of business model, there are also some structural issues that make that difficult for systems. And remember, in the US healthcare system, about a third to a half of care is delivered 
through health systems, right? So you need those to change. Now, there's some great ones. One of my colleagues, Mark Harrison, ran Intermountain. He switched it largely to value. But he owned the pair, um, or Intermountain owns the pair in, um, in Utah, right? So he was able to work because they have the yeah, pay. He had, yeah, he, he had the stack. Yeah, he had the stack. So um, we're into the last few minutes of the show. When we wrap up, what I like to do is ask people just for, you know, more of a personal kind of take on things. So in your experience, very quickly in a minute or two, of all the businesses that you've been involved in, what are the commonalities either around the product, the approach, the mindset, the founders? What are some of the things that you would say are the top three things that that you've seen are sort of indicators that those companies have a better shot versus a less good shot or that those founders have a better shot versus a less good shot? I think intentionality, right? Healthcare is hard. This is not for people who sort of want to follow momentum, right? So what is the problem you are trying to solve? Do you have lived experience in that problem or do you have a particular insight that gives you a different perspective? Because again, the best businesses in healthcare find a way to operate outside or at the margin of the existing system but all, but ultimately to integrate back into that system, right? Because it change directly in the system doing just the same thing is very, very hard because the sales cycle and the inertia in healthcare and, and all those incentives we talked about. So intentionality, some sort of vision that is orthogonal, a little different um, to the way things work today, right? We, you know, we need to make yep. healthcare better. We can't just do the same. I think incredible grittiness um, and passion um, about um you know, what they're building and what they're doing um, and a certain sort of bravery around it, right? This is not for the faint-hearted. Uh, I think are really key um, factors. In the end of the day, we believe strongly um, that they have to be responsible um, and they're building responsibly. And we have to, you know, they have to use technology to make a difference, 